to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Patricia Mainville has been working with children, youth, and families in education and community service for almost three decades. Pat has been a Winnipeg Foundation board member since 2017 and was also recently asked to be a feature essay in the Winnipeg Foundation's Next 100 essay series, where Winnipeggers were asked to envision a Winnipeg in the next 100 years. Education has played a huge role in in my life, uh, coming from a family of residential school survivors and um, being a part of the 60s scoop and being able to um, find out who we are in order to know where we're going because that's uh, something that uh, someone had told me way back when, when I was a teen, when I didn't know who I was. I sat down with Pat Mainville to talk about cultural identity and the importance of community, the education system and adapting for remote learning during COVID-19, and how her family was affected by the profound tragedy of residential schools. Thank you for listening to the Because and Effect podcast. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm now joined by Pat Mainville. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Pat. Uh, thank you for the invite, Nolan. It's my pleasure. I mean, I've known you for a few years now. We've interviewed you for the radio show, and you've been at many, many events for the foundation. Um, but maybe before we get into how you were connected with the foundation, maybe just talk about the last, pretty much every podcast I've been doing for the past six months has been asking, so how has COVID been for you? And as a principal of one of the schools here in Winnipeg, I think you have a pretty unique perspective because that's absolutely crazy. So maybe how's your last you know, year and a half been and how have you been holding up just generally uh generally um it's been it's been um <laughs> um quite the event um i had to realize real quick just how flexible and and how um planning at the last minute is is needed especially in the educational field and um with, with COVID and, and planning for student learning um, and how how to best support our parents and, and students and staff uh, through that process also. Um, so just realizing that um, it is what it is and you just gotta make the best of it, right? Mm-hmm. To support everyone in general. Yeah, for sure. Um, so what's the general sort of feeling of the teachers and the students and like what 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 vibes are you getting when you're communicating with some of the parents and teachers and students over the last little bit? Like how are people holding up generally? You know what? Our parents have been so supportive. Um, uh, being being able to move to remote and having having um, um, remote uh, meetings with parents. Um, I think we've had the highest number of parents engaged um, with meetings and talking about student learning than we ever have. And that says a lot uh, coming from an alternative high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've really had a positive impact of student support and and parental support uh, during this time. Uh, but we came out with um, uh, very engaging activities um, for for our families um, to get them engaged and to stay uh, connected from our 
our um, our paint nights. We had a, a paint night with our families. We sent home like a go fresh uh, box of of food uh, that they could participate with along with the paint night that evening with us. We were at the school eating with them online. And then we went right into the paint night with Jackie Travers and with our families. And we've had the most amount of families engaged in, in that online connection, which really helped with uh, supporting our students um, and that learning because parents were forced to also come online too and our students helped them through it. So therefore we were able to connect with our families. Yeah, I've, I've kind of heard from multiple people that, you know, it's not, it wasn't all bad because now you get to stay home. You, you, it's a little more engaged, as you said, and, and it's a little more like f not forcing parents, but I mean, you're in the same house. It's like, Hey, what are you working on it? And may, may, could you tell, talk a little bit about the, the positives maybe that have come from this and in, in this crazy, crazy time that, that uh, you that you're noticing from your kids and, and parents. I think, I think the positives is that we've had to kind of dropped that formalized form of educational type of settings, mm -hmm. because now you're on this online setting and you're being uh, supportive and asking parents, what do they need? right, as parents to support their children. And it was very open and very raw that we were able to bring in um, community resources, online resources and bring them in as part of our meetings to help support parents. So we were able to see a different side and connect with our parents and students in a different way throughout the whole uh, COVID experience. Right. So, school. well, right. You're, you're able to almost strengthen. I mean, nothing is going to replace being in the room with someone mm -hmm. sitting across the table and, you know, looking into their eyes, but, but, uh, there is the opportunity to strengthen those community connections and, and how important is that coming from a education background, but you know, just in general, how important is it to have these communities have, have these connections and maintain them in such a crazy, crazy time? Um, well, we have to make those connections to be able to support our, our parents and students. Um, they were very vocal on, on their needs and our whole school is based upon empowering our families and our students to be able to give them strategies and tools so they can be successful. Um, so we stepped it up and our, our staff was very good at, at, um, at communicating and and addressing those 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 needs uh, to the effect that they built a whole school mental health plan this year, um, which is um, something that was very helpful for everyone, for staff, for students, for parents, and for our community. Or um, it it allowed us to be able to reach out and branch out to uh, various community organizations based upon the needs of our of our parents and our students. That's huge. I, I mean, I, th I think I read that you got your education degree in 2000, back in 2001. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah. So you've been in the game for 20 years now. Um, Probably a little longer because longer? I started off as an EA mm. um, in 89. Wow. 
Yeah. Okay, so, so I was an EA for five years before so, I decided to go to university. So your perspective on this will be pretty interesting and unique, I think, because, I mean, just going back from when I was school, the words mental health weren't said once, I think, in my 12 year, you know, 13 years or whatever in, in regular school. Um, how have you noticed the priorities change and evolve for, for kids and for parents and for teachers, quite frankly, when it comes to mental health and, and focusing on that in, over the last, over your career of, you know, 20, 30 years? Yeah, I think, well, I think in general, it has improved across across the divisions. But I think as part of my background as being an Indigenous um, educator and Indigenous person and looking at the whole person, um, mm. spiritually, mentally, physically, um, that it has played a role throughout my whole career to be able to um, support the whole, the whole being, um, which includes a mental health piece. Um, one of my, one of my beliefs that, that, uh, comes to mind is that you have to know who you are in order to know where you're going. So mm -hmm. being able to do that inward work to be able to empower yourself, um, plays a whole, a huge part in in my beliefs in education so i've always had that innate um uh, passion to be able to to support students and and parents well that that transitions yeah. us well yeah, that, that, that sort of segues us nicely into your um, centennial essay that you wrote for the Winnipeg Foundation. Our listeners can uh, read it at www.wpgfdn.org slash next100. Um, and the intro from that essay is, who am I? Where do I come from? What is my purpose? Where am I going? And those questions raised by um, Justice Murray Sinclair and on his work in Truth and Reconciliation, maybe I'll let you describe your essay a little bit. What motivated you to write it? I mean, obviously being asked by Stacy or whoever asked you, but uh, maybe just take me back to when you were first asked and you were reflecting on what you what you might want to say looking forward for Winnipeg's next 100 and, and, and how that all came together for you. Um, I think um, basically it's it's about my life and my beliefs and my passions but also um, education has played a huge role in, in my life, being uh, coming from a family um, of residential school survivors and um, being a part of the 60 Scoop and being able to um, find out who we are in order to know where we're going, because that's uh, something that uh, someone had told me way back when, when I was a teen, when I didn't know who I was, mm. um, and I didn't know where I was going, and I didn't know how to um, love myself because I didn't know who I was. So that's something that I've always instilled and in working and worked towards at. Um, empowering our students or our youth um, throughout the years um, in education, in all the work that I do, um, that 
it's been a part of me. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, it's not even work. It's, 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 it's more of a passion that I want to share. I want to be able to create voices. I want to be able to empower our youth so that they are successful because I know that um, coming from my background, a lot of our youth um, don't have that opportunity or that time to be able to reflect and learn. Um, I'm just thinking in the past year, um, one of our graduates who her family Um, They never talked about the residential school, but their Mm. family was a part of the residential school and they've never talked about it. Mm. And she was graduating and didn't even have the opportunity. Like she, she says that they never spoke about it Mm -hmm. and that she didn't know much about it. So one of her big final assignments was learning about the 60 scoop and residential schools. And it elevated her and empowered her to think about how she was going to break cycles in our family Mm. and that's something that that's almost like a light bulb going off because once students find out about that and learn about that it does break cycles and it might not affect them right then and there when they're that young, but it will, it will trigger them in their twenties to be able to want to break those cycles for the the next generation. Yeah. So that's one of my passions for sure. And I think so much of it is like, once you learn sort of the actual history and the family history and everything that comes along with it, you can say like, Oh, that's why that happened. Or that's why I, I, that's why I respond to that situation like that or whatever the case may be. And every situation is obviously different. I mean, your history with, with parents and cousins and brothers and sisters and extended family, all being a part of the residential school system, the um, last however many months it has with these rediscoveries of, of all the remains must have been so it's very impossible to go through. I mean, how I'm sorry to bring it up again and just sort of rehash all these things. But I mean, what was that like seeing these things happen and what's it like seeing now the, the sort of mainstream consciousness waking up to what your family and and you have known for so many years? Like what, what's that like seeing people be like, Oh, that's, you know, what's actually happened and and what's going on? Like, are are you, Mm -hmm. what's going through your mind when you see all that go down? I think that like I've been in education for the last 20, 25 years Mm -hmm. or so. And, um, and things have changed, but haven't changed enough. When they brought up the discovery of the 215, yes, it was a big shock and it, it, it did w- wake up a lot of people. But now we're going into 5,000, 6,000, and those numbers are just going to go up. We need to keep on talking about it. We, we need to put action be, behind um, what we're going to do as, as a community as a collective community, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do to make change? And as an indigenous educator, and I I believe other indigenous educators, we don't, 
we shouldn't feel the need to try to validate why teaching this is important. Mm -hmm. We're past that point. We're past the point of Well, well, I hope so, but sometimes that's not always the case. And we need to keep on talking about it with everyone around us. And we need to be able to share and also stop or stop conversations that go against our collective has our collective history right right to be able to build change yeah one of the one of the sort of ways that the foundation is approaching this is the uh, reconciliation grants program um, you're the chair of that committee that's sort of overseeing all that stuff maybe how did you get involved in that what is the overarching goal for the committee and and what do you see? Uh, in the future of, of how this 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 granting program is going to sort of move us forward along the path uh, to reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, with the Reconciliation Committee, um, what we were finding is that um, a lot of, um, oh my gosh, going back, I'm trying to, <laughs> um, this was when the, the, the calls to action came mm-hmm. out and we wanted to, um, we wanted to be able to make a positive change within, within, um, within the city of Winnipeg and Manitoba. Um, and, but we wanted to do it in a way that is respectful and mindful of the Indigenous communities, um, to be able to do it in a way that is respectful using Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous peoples to be able to oversee and take a look at organizations and their work that they we're going to commit to do. Mm. Um, so when I came on to the foundation, I, I first came on as as a as a, a community member participating in in committees, and then eventually um, was asked to come on to the board. Um, so when uh, we started the reconciliation grants. Um, Um, one of the things that I did ask for is that we bring in community Indigenous uh, knowledge keepers, but those that were in the community that knew uh, community organizations and that they come up with Mm. um, the the requirements, but the criteria for these grants, uh, looking at Indigenous knowledge keepers looking at doing it in a way that's respectful that they are following the 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 64 calls to action, but also um, taking a look at at UNDRIP and Mm -hmm. using that as as a as a way of looking at grants to see whether or not they fall into those criteria, but also to make sure that um, the grants were not one-offs, but something that can be carried on for long-term work and that affected um, or that we were going to impact um, the Manitoban community in general. Not, it wasn't just for Indigenous people. This was to be able to spread awareness and education throughout Mm -hmm. Manitoba. So um, with these 
group, wonderful group of people. Oh my gosh, I was so honored to be able to work with them. Um, they came up with, with, with the criteria and how we were going to do this. And it was an opportunity to be able to take a look at various organizations and groups and the work that they committed, that they were committing to do. Mm-hmm. It's gigantic. One thing, one one thing I'm I'm noticing a lot, and a lot of themes that I that I'm coming up against with various communities that that I've of people that I've interviewed is that so many of of the problems and of the issues that we've had in the past is one group of people sees a problem in another community and then they impose their own solutions, whereas. Mm-hmm. I think a more modern way and more smart way and a more effective way of approaching things is allowing people to come up with their own solutions and then supporting those. Can you talk about that distinction and, and, and how people think that they're doing good or they might have, you know, good intentions as, mm-hmm. <laughs> as is the sort of buzzword. Um, but we, it really needs to be led by the community themselves and then supported in whatever way they need. Can you just yes. expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, um, this is exactly what I do at this school with, with the students, and and this is what I, I I share with my staff is that we have to empower our youth or our community to be able to become their own heroes by giving them strategies and tools to empower and uplift themselves to be able so that they can take themselves out of or to make change for the betterment of the whole so that they can be successful. Um, it isn't for us to go in and save. That's right. not my job. I want to be able to teach those strategies and, the, and those tools. And that's what a part of the, the reconciliation grants was looking for. They wanted to be able to see that they were empowering but also providing those strategies long term mm-hmm. not just a short term or or a, a one-off right. um, but they were looking at how they can best support learning because what reconciliation is 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 education mm-hmm. really and sharing that knowledge right mm-hmm. um so they go hand in hand when you talk mm-hmm. about reconciliation and education piece pieces. Well, Val Vince piece at the at the Forks education is the new buys and like oh, I love that so powerful so, so incredible and so accurate amazing. so accurate I could sit there and just read each and every one of those books oh it's so empowering it's wonderful to see it's incredible if stuff. anyone gets a chance go down and take your tea or your coffee or whatever it is, your water, go sit there and, and take a look at all of those books. It's amazing how many books there were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a really cool piece for sure. Uh, I want to expand a little bit about what you were talking about before. Like your job has to be so flexible because every single situation is different. You can't make a catch, a, a catch all program. That's going to, you know, be the right, application for every single person and that's kind of a weird you know space to be in because you have to be reactive but also proactive and you can't you can't you know maybe just talk about how your skill set needs to be 
so it can't be the same for every it's not a one size fits all approach right it's a sort of holistic you have to each single person has their own set of needs and, and requirements and and, per, and and situations but like what's that like as a as an educator knowing that you can't just you know come up with a curriculum that's going to be a one size fits all for everyone that each person has their own requirements and and, and you need to adapt to each one mm. yeah i think i think as educators we do that automatically is that we teach based upon the needs of the student mm. so we have to get to know who that student is right which is why we also want students to get to know their own learning styles and their own needs, right? Because mm -hmm. then they'll be able to help themselves and be able to advocate for themselves, right? And that's what we want our community members to be able to do also, right? To be able to advocate for themselves, to know what their needs are. But students, especially, well, I'm in high school now. I did elementary for a long time, but, but, even elementary students can do that. They know what their learning needs are. They can advocate based upon what they need. And that's um, what we do in high school also. I mean, we maybe it's easier because I'm an alternative high school and it's in a smaller setting, but I don't, I believe that every teacher wants to be able to teach based upon student need. Mm -hmm. right uh get to know who who that student is and teach where they're at it's huge yeah i uh i, I remember going through school and it was just it, it was the same you know the same lesson for all 35 40 kids or whatever it is right and it i i i used to think this when i was when i was a kid but i really think we don't give kids enough credit when it comes to like what you're talking about being able to advocate for themselves and understand what they need and it's i don't know what the reason i mean it might just be com coming from the like kids are meant to be seen and not heard right like don't mm -hmm. And, and how have you watched maybe the evolution since you first started back in 89 as a TA to yeah. now where kids have a little bit more agency and we're allowing them to sort of, you know, be the controllers of their own destiny, destiny a little bit more. And, 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 and how are you helping to empower that? We are trying to empower our students to become independent thinkers, but also independent learners. Right. And in order for that to happen, they have to know who they are as a learner and as a thinker. Right. So it always goes back to you got to know who you are. Right. Yeah. In all aspects, not just your learning and your thinking, but who are you are as a person. Mm -hmm. Right. And to be able to love yourself is another thing. Well, but then you're not just an instructor. Then you're also a, you know, a psychologist, a therapist, a, a parent. And sometimes you like, are, you're a jack of all trades when you're an educator. <laughs> so you have to hire, you know, I mean, I love teachers in general, but I mean, you have to hire the best people to want to do that job. Like what's it like sort of playing the admin side of things and, and, and trying to empower your teachers to teach them like, Hey, you're going to have some tough days when you're going to have to teach these kids like who they are. And there might be some tears and there might be some yelling and there might be some, you know, sadness, happiness, all of the emotions. Like, do, do you kind of warn teachers about that? Or do you let them figure that out on their own? Do you know what? I think that comes with the, with, the um 
with the school environment, mm-hmm. like we built our mental health plan this year, and that's built upon, that's built right into our mental health plan um, for students to get to know who they are. But that happens in curriculum. That happens in our social studies curriculum mm-hmm. throughout the grades. Who who are you? Where do you come from? Right? Um, you could just go another another additional layer with that. So it is built in into various curriculums. It's how you present it. And, and teachers have that opportunity to be able to be creative on how they do that. Um, being in an alternative high school, um, we, have a, we have that flexibility, but other schools can do that because it's in the curriculum, it's built into the curriculum. So it's how comfortable you are at being able to add another layer or go a little deeper with that. For sure. Yeah, education, I, I've i been saying this for a while, it really seems like it's the solution to most of our problems, whether it's you know the ability to read the media and the misinformation that's out there today and think critically mm-hmm. and all the things that we're kind of seeing now bubble to the surface and, and the insanity that's happening all across the world. It's like education, I mean, we said it before, education is the new bison. Education really is the key to everything. Um, how, when you have conversations with people who might not necessarily believe that or might ne- mm-hmm. might think like, oh, education has enough resources. We can allocate them to other things. How do you how do you approach those conversations in a tactful way? And how do you not get frustrated working in this environment for 30 years when you when you're constantly fighting for resources, fighting for, you know, uh, the ability to empower kids and, and all this stuff that's that's been happening for the last 30 years? Mm-hmm. Um. I think that if we focus on our students and student need, individual student need, and we have that focus, that that's the path. That is the path. That is the path. And um Sometimes we don't need elaborate things. We just need to be able to teach to where that child's at. And I think sometimes it does take some extra work or some extra thought, but that's where our colleagues, our contacts come into play to be able to ask for help. And sometimes we don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. That's a huge piece to education because if, if we believe that oh patrick you, you you're touching the microphone a little bit i'm, I'm sorry some, it's okay it's okay you you're saying we, we don't know what we don't know can you expand on that a bit sometimes as educators we may get to a certain point where we think we know everything right <laughs> but not knowing what you don't know is a part of i mean being able to acknowledge that sometimes we don't know what we don't know and be okay with that and to be able to ask for help that's another huge thing um but be being open to being lifelong learners and that's something that we all are because i learned from my students i learn from my staff i i don't pretend to be the knower of all right um i learned from my parents 
So I'm always open to learning and listening. Well, that's one of the, the t- humility, right? It, it sounds it's one of the, the sacred teachings is like you you can't approach a situation thinking that you know what the solution is all the time right you have to acknowledge that maybe I don't know everything and I think there is maybe just sort of an traditionally there I remember some teachers that I had that were just so <laughs> not humble and there was just no humility or empathy or like they wouldn't listen and I think listen you're, you're talking a lot about just listen just, just listen. sometimes just listen and, and you can you can hear things that you wouldn't you wouldn't recognize. But yeah, maybe can you can you expand on how the, the seven sacred teachings affect um, what you guys are trying to do at your school and what you've been doing in your career as well? Yes, um, that plays a lot into into our school. Um, the last two years, it's had been really difficult because it has played a huge impact on what our school does um, with community-based and a lot of the being able to gather, mm, Yeah. right? And not having that interaction or that, that connection because it's a different connection in person than you would online. And to be able to meet as a class makes it very difficult um but the seven teachings definitely has a huge impact uh, within our school um we utilize in everything we do Mm -hmm. well it's it's really disheartening and, and heartbreaking that those teachings and and ideas along the way were tried were attempted to be destroyed and attempted to be erased from history because they're so beautiful and mm-hmm. and effective and touching and it's like it really boggles my mind that someone could 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 see these ideas and these indigenous ways of knowing and be like no that's not the way we should do things like the arrogance required first of all is just insane but then when it comes to i've been talking to a lot of people about the environment and just how how the indigenous approach to the environment would have led us or would not have led us into the current climate crisis that we're in i mean do you think about that i know climate and and the environment isn't your area of expertise but i'm I'm just curious of your perspective when it comes to you know our relationship with nature and and the environment and how we're in the predicament that we're in and why and if we perhaps would have listened to some the the elders that knew how to maintain like what what are your thoughts on that i'm kind of rambling a bit um in regards to um land-based knowledge or land-based teachings i think that we always need to stay connected to the land in order to gain that humility Mm. that we're talking about um that arrogance is thinking that we're better than or no more than um because we're separate from it because we think we're we're, we we think we're separated from it but when you realize that everything's connected there the humility is built in because you are are, you are the environment yeah yeah exactly um our school does a lot with that with that land-based um learning we're actually on the first day of the school um 
when we come back, our staff will be taking a half day and connecting with the land and talking about how we're going to implement that throughout the school year. Uh, because we do a lot with uh, sustainable development, but making those connections to those teachings for our students to be able to deal with mental health also, right? That connection to be able to deal with our own well-being, um, but using our curriculum to be able to get there also. So that's something that our staff will be doing on the first day of school. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. And we're just going on, on a regular walkabout, right? But, but our conversations will be towards curriculum and connecting our students to that this year and our commitment uh, to that. So I, I'm, um, I'm almost envious of the kids these days because like, I'm so happy that we're finally teaching the right things and walking in the right direction, right? Like, mm -hmm. what do you, what do you see for the future for the kids? Like, it's only going to get better. I'm hoping, you know, are you optimistic? Where, where are you thinking? I am optimistic. I, I am because I think students are beginning to think critically based upon the information, because there's so much information being thrown at us on a daily basis through social media, through news, through all these different YouTube, whatever it is out there, right? Um, I, but I think students are beginning to think critically, yeah. like really think critically and are connecting with the land and are putting thoughts and are having those conversations with each other and challenging each other's beliefs and biases. I mean, I see a lot of that too, which is really good to see. Um, and that's changed mm -hmm. over my 20 some odd years in education. Yeah. Well, just creating an atmosphere where challenging the status quo or you know the biases or anything is not only accepted but encouraged whereas when i went to school it was like do not question authority sh shut <laughs> your mouth and sit down you know and I, and I didn't really respond well to that but um yeah it's good it's it's an, it's heartening to see that that it's moved in the different direction um so at the end of our time together, I do a segment with all of our guests called the Just Because segment, where I ask the same seven questions all about the causes you care about and the effect that it's had on your lives. You okay to go through those with me? Yes. Awesome. Definitely. All right. Question one. What is the very first cause you ever remember caring about? I think youth. Definitely youth and education. And I think I've always kind of stayed along that path. Um, I was a kid at Rossburg House. And that's mm -hmm. where my humble beginnings, I, I mean, I've had a history before that being in this peace group and um, moving all over the states and having all that. But the first time I landed in, in Winnipeg, um, I landed at Rossburg and, and, and they've been a huge, a huge piece of my life, even to today. I mean, I'm still... Um, involved in in that so youth and education has always been a big part of my life you're li you're it, you definitely feel like you're built for this right like everything in your life has led up to this point when and you're just the perfect person to <laughs> to combine all those forces together beautiful um so question two if money and politics and logistics were no issue at all and you just had an unlimited budget and unlimited time and whatever you could just make it happen what's the first thing you would do in support of your current cause 
build in, build a lot of supportive drop-in centers for youth that had like-minded people that wanted to be, that wanted to empower our youth with strategies and tools to be successful, to be able to break cycles. Mm. Yeah. Getting yeah. back to the land. It's huge. Absolutely. For sure. Question three, uh, what's the biggest misunderstanding or the biggest stigma about the cause right now? I think that parents or students don't care or youth don't care. I think that's a huge piece because they do. It may be very surface level looking like they don't, but they do course you just have to unlock the key like find the key to what what they're passionate about right i think that's exactly that's a universal thing and and probably the hardest job for a teacher is to find out okay what are you like not everyone's gonna love math not everyone's gonna love chemistry science like all that stuff but there is something that you are good at that you love that you can you know be passionate about and dig into and and it's that's probably what the moment of teaching is all about when you can like you know unlock that potential for sure exactly yeah, beautiful. Uh, question four, what's a recent victory, either personally or professionally, that you're proud of or happy to have achieved? I think um, I think the, the last one was being able to visit my oldest son um, at his house. Um, they have six children living at home. And this was the first time that I've been able to visit them um, before the, like, since the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And to be able to see him as a father and has a husband and has a provider, do you know what? It, It made me so proud knowing that he's breaking cycles. Mm. you know being it, it just made me so proud because I've worked so hard at doing that that and I see that with all my sons mm-hmm. with all my four sons they have they've been really successful but but to be, to be able to see him as a husband and a provider and not as my my boy but as a man and being able to um, have those sit down Sunday suppers with them and being able to participate in that with them. It was, it brought tears to my eyes. I'm feeling the same way. I think I got to call my mom after this. (laughs) (laughs) Beautifully said. Uh, Yeah. Question five. uh, What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? It's, I think to get to know who you are Mm. and to know, to be able to know who you are, to know where you're going. I think that's something that I've played over and over in my mind throughout the years since I was a teenager. Um, Because as a teenager coming from um, a home of or parents that were residential school survivors and knowing that trauma and not having the parenting or the coming from a home, but having that all that trauma and upheaval and 
being able to learn that over the years and keep that as one of my foundational teachings mm. and yearning and going and falling back to that right. has helped me over the years to be able to achieve where I'm at and to be able to keep that cause because I want to be able to share that with our youth and empower them. That's yeah. So nothing would make sense if you don't know who you are, where you're from, right? Nothing makes sense unless you know who you are and where you're from and, and what, where your mom and dad are from and where your grandparents are, you know, all, all that stuff. Yeah. That's so, so important. Yeah. Beautiful answer. Thank you. Uh, question six, what advice would you give your 10 year old self if you could go back in time and, and talk to her? I would say it's going to be okay. That's a, yeah, that's a common answer. Yeah. Well, so many, so many kids need to hear that today yeah, it's, still. It's going to be okay and learn to love yourself. Such good advice. Yeah. yeah. Um, question seven, it's the hardest one. Uh, most people seem to answer it as the hardest one anyway, but uh, question seven is what do you want to be remembered for? I think I want to be remembered as somebody who's passionate about youth and education <laughs> and somebody that just cares and wants to share that. I. It's not about making a name, it's about the work we do right and, and being able to uplift our communities so the world is lucky to have you thank you so much for being on the podcast thank you for all the work you do for the foundation uh, i'm sure i'll see you at you know another upcoming event and coming up or wherever i'll see you next and we can uh, we can reconnect there but thank you for being on the podcast thank you for all the work you do pat and and uh, i guess we'll talk to you soon okay thank you nolan this was great bye Thank you again to Pat Mainville for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, incredibly honored to have you on the program. It was great to talk to you, and uh, I really feel lucky um, to just be able to listen to some of the wisdom there. So thank you. And thank you for listening. I'm not sure how many people keep the podcast on after the guest is gone, um, but if you're still here, uh, I appreciate you. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening, and uh, thanks for tuning in. All music on the show is composed by Trenton Burton. You can hear more of his music at trentonburton.com. The Cause and Effect is a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation. Learn more about the foundation by visiting wpgfdn.org or by following us on social media at wpgfdn. I'm at Nolan Bicknell on social media. You can find me there. I will see you in two weeks as I'm away for vacation next week. But until then, thank you again for listening. And remember, when a stone is dropped into a pond the water continues quivering even after the stone has sunk to the bottom. Bye-bye. <laughs>